really asking for and asking tough questions. Does poverty drive inequality or does inequality drive poverty? Women just were not able to reach out and to look for support. We may all be in the same ocean, but some are in super yachts and some are clinging to debris. Emissions are expected to rise to their highest ever level. What should we do now? We are in the same world. We work together for a common goal. Welcome to Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. I'm Andrew Trimble, the washed up ex-rugby player. On today's episode, we'll be looking at conflict as well as its impact on the lives of people experiencing it every day. Conflict is obviously a complicated topic, so I'm delighted it's not just me sitting here talking about it. I've been joined by two experts who can tell me all I need to know. Firstly, I want to welcome Dr. Katrina Dowd, Assistant Professor in Security Studies at DCU School of Law and Government. Katrina's research includes the dynamics of political violence in sub-Saharan Africa, especially the role of conflict in humanitarian crisis. She's also focused on civilian targeting and terror tactics and the use of new ways of monitoring violence. Her research has been published worldwide. And in her previous role as Peace and Conflict Specialist, Katrina worked in Somalia, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Mali, Kenya, Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Afghanistan. Very well-traveled. Um, Katrina, um, welcome along. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Good stuff. Also joining us today is Innocent Mumar Rarangu, Interim Country Director with Oxfam International, and I'm hoping, Innocent, I haven't butchered that pronunciation, Innocent, who's based in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, works on disaster preparedness, mitigation, management for Oxfam, including humanitarian response activities for emergencies. Innocent has more than a decade's experience in directorship roles in Oxfam and other organisations He's worked in a wide range of areas, including child protection, humanitarian response to COVID and Ebola and livelihoods. Welcome, Katrina and Innocent. Thank you both for joining me today, taking time out of your busy schedules. Innocent, how did I do with that pronunciation? That's good. Uh, thank you for having me in this video. And you have well pronounced my name. <laughs> good stuff. That's a great start. So first of all, if you don't mind, let's talk about conflict in general and what conflicts are going on. Katrina, give us an idea of what's, what's going on in terms of conflict around the world. What's in the public sphere as in what's high profile and what's the, what are the conflicts that are going on currently that, that don't seem to be getting as much coverage as you might have thought? Thanks. Well, the first thing I think to, to say if we want to approach the topic of conflict is certainly that it's increasing. And I think that's something that isn't a surprise maybe to listeners, but quite the scale of how much conflict we're seeing today, I think, is is pretty notable. By one estimate, that's the Uppsala Conflict Data Programme, reports that there were 169 active conflicts in the world in 2020, up from just 109 or rather up from 109 already, a very sizable figure 20 years ago. And partly that reflects the fact that we have better reporting and, and more information about conflicts that are going on. But that figure alone doesn't even begin to tell us how violent those conflicts are, uh, how long lasting they are and their impacts, of course, that, that uh, colleagues in Oxfam and Innocent and others will, will be able to directly speak to on the ground. But in addition to conflict becoming more frequent and, and increasing, we're also seeing conflicts that are more protracted. They're lasting longer and there's a greater risk with each conflict that they will recur. So we're 
we're seeing more and more these patterns of cyclical conflict or conflict recurring even after uh, perhaps it's initially uh, resolved or conflict uh, is is managed to some extent. We're seeing countries lapsing back into conflict again. And each of those dynamics, more conflict, longer lasting conflicts and recurring or, or cyclical conflict has a devastating impact and a different impact on people on the ground in terms of their ability to not just survive, but also to recover and rebuild their lives. Okay, give us a bit of an idea, um, uh, Katrina, what, what's going on currently? What are the big ones that we should know about? There is no shortage of cases of, of conflict that we might look at in terms of their devastating impact. Many people will be familiar, of course, with the recent developments in Afghanistan. Um, they'll be following situations in Yemen. They may have seen coverage of that in the news or in Ethiopia. These are just some of the high profile contexts that we're seeing a huge amount of conflict and a huge amount of devastation resulting from them. But there are also conflicts that maybe have slipped off the radar to some extent. In other words, they're not getting the coverage or the profile that we know in terms of the cost and the devastating impact of them that we might expect. And I think the Democratic Republic of Congo or Central African Republic, these are two contexts where we've seen conflict long running for an extended period of time, ongoing crisis, and really that huge cost. And I would say in particular cost for the most vulnerable. I think sometimes when we think about the number of conflicts or we think about them in this sort of abstract sense, we lose sight a little bit of the impact that that has on just the different groups within within a country and the different vulnerable groups within a country and thinking in particular of women and girls or young people or people who were already perhaps vulnerable recovering from the last round or the last episode of conflict in a context. And so even within what sounds like a terrible headline of these conflicts and these crises, we need to keep in mind that in, in many of these places, people have been struggling and suffering for an extended period of time for many years, if not decades, under repeated cycles of violence. And that has a, has a huge impact too. And it's often those conflicts, those ones that have been running for a, a long time, that just don't seem to get quite as much coverage. And maybe they have slipped out of the news cycle, but the real impact, the devastating impact on people is no less real. Okay, thanks for that um, snapshot, Katrina. Innocent, just want to bring you in there. Katrina mentioned the DRC, where you are based at the minute. Do you want to give me a bit of an idea of what the state of play is currently and yeah, what, what that's like on the ground? Thank you so much. The conflicts in DRC, I name it a forgotten crisis or neglected crisis. Currently, the whole country, in different parts of the country, we have different crises. I can start maybe in eastern part of DRC, where we have uh, around more than uh, 200 uh, rebels or groups of armed groups. But uh, this one, you will not find it covered in many media. There is uh, even the group called ADF Nalu, which was uh, recently identified as a terrorist group. But this one, you can still see there is lack of awareness. Yesterday, when I was talking to some of the colleagues who are in uh, on the field in South Kivu, in the highland of Kivu, there are still conflicts that are running there. Around 300 villages have been burned. More than uh, 250,000 kettles have been eroded, but still you can't see this media covering. This is just the part of the eastern DRC, but if you go also on the western part of DRC, there's conflict such as uh, the areas like Bianga, Mokoto, 
where uh, pygmies and Bantus are fighting between themselves. And the most affected people are women and girls. So when you go to the east and south part of DRC in Tanganyika, you will see there is conflict between some other tribe groups. Around 250 people were displaced last year just in that area only. But globally, I can call the crisis of DRC is a forgotten crisis, but there are so many that are happening in DRC that needs attention of everyone and the world international communities to intervene. I don't know if you have just given you the snapshot of some of the conflict that we are having in DRC currently. Innocent, that's that's really good to get an idea of where you're at. Katrina, I just want to bring you in there. In DRC in particular, the way Innocent described it there, it's the forgotten crisis. And it's that typical for people on the ground. They think, okay, this was a high-profile crisis at one stage. Now it, it seems to have slipped down the pecking order in terms of the attention that it's being received in Western media. Is that a typical mechanism for what Innocent's describing there? Certainly, and unfortunately, we often see that, that we get coverage or attention or a spotlight on an issue really at a crisis point or at a particular peak crisis point. So we might be accustomed to seeing a couple of days or a couple of weeks maybe focus on a particular crisis and then very little follow-up. And I think that's Unfortunately, that can contribute to a sense that maybe the crisis has gone away, um, that people may think, well, I haven't heard anything on that. And so maybe that issue has has resolved itself or it's not quite so severe. And we know that that's not the case. So it's not the case that uh, media coverage equates exactly to the severity of a crisis because we can still see very severe crises and long-lasting impacts in exactly what Innocent has said, a forgotten or a neglected crisis. At the same time, it, it can be difficult, I mean, for, for audiences, for readers, for listeners to engage, I think, with stories where they think perhaps there hasn't been much change. Perhaps uh, this is a long running crisis. How do you tell that story in, in new and different ways? So, I'm, you know, it's, it's understandable that there can be a sense of sort of disaster fatigue on the part of maybe coverage, media coverage, but also on the part of audiences as well. How do we tell these stories in an impactful way? But I would say that for people looking for that information, looking for that coverage to follow organizations that are doing great work in those contexts is really key. And particularly when you see coverage, particularly that's either written by, uh, produced by, or features the voices of people directly affected by conflict and crisis, to really amplify that, share it, read it, follow up, ask questions, and show that there's a demand and an interest and an appetite for this kind of coverage. Because I think people can see that when people share and when people engage with that kind of content, there is an impact. If we think about, for example, the climate crisis only a few years ago, that wasn't getting a huge amount of coverage. If we think about mainstream media, it was far less of a central topic. But people really asking for and asking tough questions about uh, the climate crisis and coverage around it has really changed the narrative on that in the media. And so I think it, it shows that kind of a bit of activism and engagement with these issues can show that there's an interest and an interest particularly from the perspective of what, if we're thinking about um, audiences in Ireland, what Ireland is doing on some of these issues too. That's really interesting, especially Katrina you're talking about the climate crisis and how that just all of a sudden just becomes on people's radar. And Afghanistan is very recent as well. And the way you described it, you said we have to be able to tell a story and capture people's imagination. And it's a shame that we kind of rely on that because we're quite fickle in the West. Something captures us and then a month later we've forgotten about it, but it's just as real on the ground. In terms of telling stories, the climate crisis, what you talked about, like Greta, Greta Thunberg, just 
brought that into everybody's sharp attention and just, you know, this charismatic child just doing something that none of the rest of us could do. And to your point, it's telling a story, Katrina. Absolutely. And and really drawing attention to an issue that people feel passionate about. And I think what stands out to people when we see activism around those kinds of issues is the credibility and the passion and the the sincerity around it. And I think we've seen with a number of different crises over the past year or a couple of years that people in Ireland and people in, in all over the world do feel passionately about the issues at the heart of some of these crises. We saw huge focus and attention on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, for example, recently. People have been really seized of the issues in Afghanistan, the public in general, I mean, not just our, our political leadership, but the public being moved by the images and, and what they're seeing. So I think the the foundation is there in the sense that people feel a sense of of shock, uh, of of horror at what they're seeing. They feel a sense of maybe outrage if they see the the injustice that's underpinning it. And I think that showing that there's an interest in in understanding those stories and understanding those issues, both in the media and within our political institutions and and accountability more widely, I think is is really key to changing that narrative and going from snapshot coverage to saying, actually, we're all living in an interconnected world. It's important that we take account of these issues and that we tell these stories and particularly profile and feature those voices of people working directly in these contexts. And that's why it's uh, particularly great to be here with Innocent today and to be hearing about his work and uh, and the team there. Yeah, Innocent, how frustrating is it from your end that these are problems that you're experiencing on the ground day in, day out, but it's out of the spotlight? How frustrating is it that it's the it's the forgotten crisis? Honestly, it's very frustrating and very disappointing from our perspective, saying this from the humanitarian perspective, but also from someone who is living in DRC, who is experiencing this crisis on a daily basis. I'm not comparing everything, but we can just take an example. When the Taliban took over the power in Afghanistan, how did you see the international media reacting? Like the whole media go to CNN, this is what they are talking. Go to France 24, this is what they are doing. BBC, that's what they are, they are saying. But when you check the fact-finding of DRC, last year, 2020, uh, we were counting 2 million displaced people in DRC and uh, 5 million internally displaced people in DRC. And you don't see anything uh, in the media. People are not reacting. Today we are talking about the conflict of uh, Highland of uh, South Kivu, where be the conflict between Panyamulenge and some other ethnic groups such as Bafulero. We are counting on 500, over 100, 500 people have already died. No one is covering this. We ask ourselves, why? We are in the same world. The role of the media is to bring awareness, is to even raise the fund. It, it helps in raising funds for supporting those vulnerable people. But when the issue is not talked about, no one is talking about these stories, these atrocities, who will intervene? Either humanitarian, either even the international community to intervene to solve those problems. It's really frustrating from humanitarian perspective, but also from the communities that are living there, they say, where is the world? Where is the media now? Yeah, uh, that's a very challenging question. Innocent, 
Whereas the media, the media is very active for a period and then out of sight, out of mind. And everybody in the West certainly will be moving on to whatever's new and whatever's fresh. And as you say, it, it must be very, very frustrating. Um, one thing both of you guys have mentioned is the effect, especially on women and girls. Do you want to give us a bit of an insight there in what you've seen? What's that like in DRC? And then on a bigger scale, why does conflict always affect women and girls the most? Yes, I would say from the DRC perspective, but also sub-Sahara perspective, because I've worked in different countries, including Rwanda, Central African Republic, Burundi, and DRC now. Women are powerless. That's how they are considered. And whenever there is a conflict in many communities, women are targeted. And you'll find if rape has been used as a weapon in DRC, uh, there is even a time they used to call a rape capital in the world. The, you heard about the story about what Mukwege, Dr. Mukwege, the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, uh, is doing, treating those women to us. And to me, uh, women are targeted because when they target women, the community becomes more weaker and uh, it's easy to conquer that war. You find that they are targeted and now, they are victims in all angles because they are powerless. On the other hand, when men are going to fights, women are left behind. They are responsible for cultivating the land. They are the one doing house to cows. They are doing everything in the house. And at the same time, they are targeted during the war. They are targeted in two ways. One, they have a lot of things to do in their house. But when they are still doing this, they are being targeted by the rebels in those areas. I may not explain too much, Kationa, you know better about this, but this is what I see from the context of African culture. Women have been always targeted in different conflicts. Yeah, Katrina, can you just pick up on that? That's really interesting. That's not just African culture, that's everywhere, is it? Um, absolutely. We've seen uh, the differential targeting, in other words, the specific or the deliberate targeting of women and girls in conflicts around the world and and there are very few societies in which we can say there isn't that difference in terms of power where there isn't a, a, a marked difference in terms of equality and I would really echo um, what Innocent has said around that deliberate targeting and the vulnerability of women and girls precisely because in many contexts of the gender roles that they play so that vulnerability um, in the context of for example having to take responsibility for crop cultivation or livestock for example that means travelling far from your home if you're trading for instance or you're selling food or goods in a market that also means travelling that means moving around in contexts that we know are insecure. And so I think that there's lots of aspects of women's roles and the, that they occupy in society that make them particularly vulnerable. But at the same time, I think we should also spotlight the strength and contribution and, and agency and activism of women and girls because on the other hand, we see this persistent neglect and exclusion of women and girls from peace building too. So when we come to the to the resolution of conflict or the tail end of conflict, we see persistently that women are activists for peace. They're mobilizing for peace in their communities. We see lots of initiatives that are led by women saying we demand justice, we demand peace. These are the provisions that we want to see because this is what peace means to us. And yet we see this persistent uh, trend and, and civil society organizations led by women in particular are excluded from peace agreements or peace processes. And that's, that's a huge oversight. And I think that's something specifically the international community can do more on, which is to say, we know that women are affected uh, in conflict. We know they're affected differently in conflict. We know that their voices in terms of 
uh, how we can resolve conflict and what we should do to build a more equal and just society in the wake of conflict are essential. And so let's focus on how we can get not just women in the room, but increasingly the focus is on how can we have women making uh, making real contributions around peace agreements and peace processes? How can we get them leading processes, for example? And what do we need to change about the way we engage in peace building to make that a reality? How challenging is that, Katrina, going in to somewhere and challenging their, their culture and saying, um, okay, this is the way you've always done it, but here's a new way of looking at it and here's how we can get uh, women being more active and in the centre of, of everything and providing solutions. How challenging is that? I think it's challenging for everyone. So not only, uh, you know, it's challenging everyone's sort of gender norms or stereotypes. It's not even a question that there are particular countries or cultures in which women have been excluded. But we've seen power holders at very high levels. We continue to see an inequality in terms of women's roles in these kinds of processes at very high levels. So that's something I think that cuts across. I think what's key is framing it not as something where maybe external powers are saying, well, we need to see this and we need to push for this or we need to see women take up this role and we're going to change this this culture around peace building, but recognising that the demand is within societies themselves. The demand is within community organisations and women's organisations in so many societies. Women human rights defenders in places like Afghanistan, for example, have been absolutely at the forefront of demanding change, of demanding justice, of demanding accountability, of pushing for equality. And that is, you know, that's those are taking extraordinary risks and it takes extraordinary courage. And I think to amplify those voices and support those initiatives and listen to what women are are calling for in those contexts is really the the path we should all be taking in terms of uh, the international community rather than see it as something that should be imposed or or uh, framed as we're going to change the way you do things to say we need to make space for people who are leading these calls within different countries and within different societies because they're the ones who are ultimately going to live with the consequences of a just or an unjust peace and who are ultimately going to be the owners of that that outcome. Yeah, as you say, Katrina, it's a challenge for all of us. So in a sense, whether that be in, in a crisis or a conflict, we're all on the same page and we're all being challenged by that. Um, one thing that you mentioned I've had to do a bit of Googling. <laughs> so I'm really keen. Can you just define what a proxy war is? Katrina, do you want to kick us off there? Sure. A, a proxy war is effectively where we have external powers, uh, usually states who are sponsoring or supporting actors in a conflict, maybe in a country very far away, who without being maybe directly involved. So we might traditionally think of um, uh, of a, a war as different sides engaging in fighting on the ground, for example, and directly involved in, in clashes. But a proxy war is effectively where we see a, a sponsorship or support for different sides in a conflict from power holders, uh, states or others who are very far away. And so we see that conflict play out maybe at a distance from those other actors, but it can be, of course, no less devastating in terms of its impacts. Okay, Innocent, can you give us an idea then? What does that look like? Who's involved? Who's pulling the strings behind the scenes? Uh, and, and what so-called benefits are there for the states involved? For DRC, it's a bit complicated to know who is behind this because there are so many factors that uh, fuel this conflict. One of them, you can say, is the mining extractive uh, industry. Uh, those people who are behind those extractive industries, 
sometimes you find there are big international companies or some big countries behind there who have interest in DRC. Secondly, there are another aspect of some other politicians, local politicians, especially when we are going toward the elections. They will say for them to be voted, they will say this community is doing this, you should not do this. Politicians are fueling a lot of uh, hatred. Even last week, there was uh, a complaint lodged to the court in DRC against some politicians who are saying hatred speeches. The other part of it is land conflicts. Some uh, group, uh, ethnic group, will say, who is the owner of this land? Who occupied this land before? And this becomes like a start of the conflicts. And this is, in fact, one of the issues that we are dealing with in Northern Kiev with the fund from Irish aid, uh, trying to resolve the issues around the land conflicts. But in DRC, generally, we can say there's the timber exploitation, mining exploitation, political interests, and land conflict. Those are the main issues that brings conflict in DRC. What I can see as a similarity from other countries is the impact and also the, the vulnerability of those uh, targeted groups, uh, such as we said above, women and children. Okay, so there's, there's an awful lot going on to a conflict behind the scenes that's driving it. And there's a lot of different motivations. Um, Katrina, you'd mentioned that conflicts are on the rise, but the number of deaths from conflicts um, have been falling since uh, 1946. What's what's going on there? How do how do you how do you bring those two together? That's an interesting question, and it partly depends on how we we monitor and measure conflict. So, uh, you know, without being sort of too technical around it, we do have issues around data and how we actually reliably account for and estimate the number of people who've been killed in conflict. So sometimes when we see these figures and um, broad trends, it can be difficult to know how reliable those figures are. We have huge issues with reporting. Of course, in conflict areas, it makes it very difficult to understand and reliably estimate how many people have been affected. Um, And having that information over time, of course, a a long period of time can also be challenging. So I think that is something that's worth keeping in mind when we think about these these broad figures. The other trends that can be driving, though, an, an overall decrease in maybe the intensity of conflict, we do see that there have been, for example, improvements in in medicine and in in military medicine, um, and that's been well documented and researched by people, including um, scholars Fazal and Post, who've written about this, talking about how, in fact, we've seen improvements around the treatment of people who are wounded or, or injured in conflict. That's not to say that war isn't still very deadly, but it is less deadly than it was perhaps 100 or or 50 years ago. And so that's not necessarily a reassuring fact in terms of the impact and, of course, the ultimate desire for there to be less conflict. But it is part of the way that war is waged that that has changed to some extent. And thirdly, we have seen a shift in terms of the changing nature of conflict. So we are seeing, by some estimates, far greater civilian targeting in conflict. So some of these figures that we see around the decrease in deaths as a result of conflict globally are based on an estimate of uh, deaths on the battlefield, for example, or deaths in directly in conflict. And in fact, we've seen an increased number of, of civilians who are directly affected by violence, and those may not be accounted for in those figures. But secondly, um, you know, to, to speak to some of the points that Innocent raised, 
even where we see deaths falling, that doesn't necessarily take account of the wider devastating impact of violence. So its impact on economic development, its impacts on health systems, its long-term impacts on education or well-being in the household, gender equality and other factors that might be not just disrupted, but un, you know fundamentally transformed by a conflict in a, in a context. So I think it's certainly the case that we're seeing some changes in the intensity and the lethality of conflict, but unfortunately it's not um, in and of itself a, a good news story in the sense that we have lots of reasons to, to remain sceptical and indeed very concerned about the targeting and the consequences of the conflicts we still see going on, and particularly for civilians or, or in other words, people who are not combatants, so not involved in the fighting directly. Yeah, Katrina, you mentioned um, getting accurate information and getting accurate figures and metrics and, and just understanding more accurately, I suppose, and, and more trustworthy data on the impact of conflicts around the world. Is there a potential solution to this? How do we, we more accurately gauge the impact? And if we are able to do that, that could, coming back to our initial conversation about getting something into the public sphere and understanding out there, if we can get metrics that are trustworthy, then we can point out, listen, this is a bigger deal than that. <laughs> not, I mean, not that it's a competition, but this should be higher up the public agenda. Is there a solution to this? What's the best way of getting accurate, trustworthy numbers to kind of give an idea of the impact of, of some of these crises and conflicts? Sure. I, there is work in this area. So I mentioned one data initiative earlier, UCDP, that does does some monitoring on conflict. Um, I've also done some work with the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Set that also seeks to collect this data and monitor it. The data that gets collected is really dependent on a couple of things, and that includes uh, access and the ability to report in areas. And I think this then touches on some of the the issues that might affect innocent and, and humanitarian colleagues, which is ensuring that there is unhindered humanitarian access, that there's unhindered access for reporting on the ground as well. And that's really essential for us to have that information. You know, we can create data sets and create metrics once we have that information, but they're only as good as the actual information that's being shared from the ground. And we've seen lots of contexts recently in which humanitarian access has been limited or prevented. We've seen situations in conflict where um, access to telecommunications or media reporting has been interrupted or prevented entirely. We've seen contexts in which there has been sort of debate around misinformation or the extent to which uh, needs are, uh, the severity of needs and how widespread needs are. And all of those are tied up in our inability to have that kind of access to information. And humanitarian actors are often at the front lines of that. They can often provide the information about the intensity of needs, exactly what needs and how widespread they are and where there are particular groups in particular need on the ground. And I think that there's a sort of information ecosystem between journalism and reporting and humanitarian actors who are spreading information about those needs and the extent of them that we can't produce that information and produce those metrics unless we have people who are able to access those areas free and unhindered um, in order to reach people in need and in order to have those accurate estimates. Okay, innocent. Um, the obviously the the proliferation of arms is something that's going to drive more conflict. How current is that, or how big a problem is that um, where you are in the DRC and, and elsewhere? You mean the the, the level of uh, armed group in these areas? How big it is? Yes. How how big a problem is that, and how much more generally is the proliferation of arms? How much is that driving conflict, and and, and is there a potential solution that to this? Yes, there are. First in DRC, you can't know how many people have uh, arm, 
There are many and they are in different areas located either south, east, west, they are everywhere. But recently the DRC government has uh, launched uh, a movement called the DRR, Disarmament of the Rebel Groups. It's a commission led by someone called Tommy Tambwe, and this was initiated this year. And we hope if the government is investing more uh, in that area, it can reduce conflicts. Because the more people carry arms and control arms, the more the conflict will be fueled in the in the country. For DRC is a big problem having many uncontrolled arm groups, either arm groups or either individuals who have uh, their own. Uh, arms in different uh, areas of the countries, especially for some communities which they want to protect their area. Let's form our own military that will protect this area. I can compare it like uh, compare it like what happened in Tigray recently, where the Tigray people are saying this is our territory, and th- this is what is happening also in DRC. There are so many groups which are saying this is our territory. Let's create our own army. Let's uh, protect our area, and this is increasing the conflict because the other ethnic group also we fight back, and when they fight back. That's how the conflict increases. So we hope with the initiative of the government of DRC and other international agencies that are involved, including Irish Aid, we were discussing to see how we can respond. And SDC, the Switzerland Development Corporation. So we are looking how we can support these people, this department of disarmament of armed group in DRC. We hope it can create a lot of conducive environment for some communities. So this is from an Oxfam report, um, Innocent. Almost 80% of the population live below the poverty line in DRC. Approximately 5.5 million people, including 3 million children, are displaced. The second highest number of refugees in the world after Syria. DRC also faces the largest ongoing food security crisis in the world with 22 million people or 20% of the population facing malnutrition and starvation. These are pretty stark statistics, Innocent. Um, are, are they related to conflict or are there other factors at play? To me, they are more related to conflict. Eh? The more people are displaced, they don't have time to cultivate they don't have time to take care of their kettles. Uh, I would put like 90% of these uh, figures or these data we are having of food security displacement, most of them, I can relate them to conflicts. Because the land of DRC is fertile, there is no way we should have hunger in this country unless people are not stable. You will find one community this week there in this area uh, in South Kivu. There is conflict. They are displaced to another area. The time they start cultivating that land, another conflict occur. They move to another location. So there are so many which are related to conflict in DRC. That's what I can say. Okay, um, Innocent, can you tell us a little bit about your role with Oxfam on the ground and what projects you're currently working on with, with Oxfam? Uh, as a Oxfam in DRC, uh, our motto has been always this, that uh, Oxfam is not neutral when it comes to uh, poverty. We, are, we take part of the uh, poverty side. We are intervening in three main areas. One is WASH. 
these people, we, we are saving lives. We are looking at where these displaced camps are. They need water and they need hygiene and sanitation. And this is one of the areas that Oxfam is intervening, especially in DRC, where around 80% of our operation is in Eastern DRC. And that's where there are so many conflicts. So the part of it is in wash, water, hygiene, and sanitation, and saving lives for those displaced people in uh, IDP camps. The other areas is also the uh, the livelihood aspect of it. As you see, the food security is a is a need and is an emergency need, especially for displaced people. We are doing uh, the cash transfers, cash for food in those camps. The other area is still protection. We are doing the, the work of protection, community-based protection. We sensitize the community how to protect themselves, how also we can have a grounded uh, level of uh, protection in the community, especially during the conflict and during the displacement. We are having also some, in all the work that we are doing, there is aspect of gender sensitivity. As we say it, gender uh, women are being uh, affected. Gender is a cross-cutting issue in all we are doing. We are sensitizing to the change of the behavior, sexual and reproductive health for those uh, vulnerable communities. Those are the main areas where we intervene in DRC, but mainly in the areas where there are conflicts. Okay, Anacent, you mentioned WASH and you mentioned it at the start again. I should have picked it up at the time, but what is WASH and how do they operate in, in relation to, to Oxfam? WASH is the water, hygiene and the sanitation. We are doing borehole, we are bringing water to the IDP camps. These people who are displaced, they are concentrated in different camps where you can find the 10,000 people in one camp living under the tent without any clean water. And with this dirty water, there are so many waterborne diseases. Oxfam's intervention is to ensure that these people, at least, they can have water. I can give an example of the recent eruption of Nyiragongo in DRC. Though it's not really related to the conflict, you will find there is a camp of 6,000 people who do not have any uh, river near to them, any uh, government water near to them, we are obliged to have either the borehole and uh, get the water to them. After like one day, we have to ensure that people are, we save lives in as much as possible since the starting from the time uh, the event occur. We have to ensure that this work is done as soon as possible. That's where Oxfam work is being done in displaced camp, either natural disaster, though there are not many in DRC, but for all conflict or for all displaced people, we ensure that we save lives through giving water, uh, livelihood, protection, and gender as cross-cutting. That work that's going on in DRC, is it Irish Aid funded work? I know you mentioned Irish Aid um, earlier on. Yes, Irish Aid is uh, finding the protection aspects, especially to resolve issues related to conflict in northern Kivu. That's Masisi, uh, more conflict related to land. But we are also, Irish Aid is, supposed, is supporting the aspect of livelihood, 
which I said also is another need. Apart from water, people need to have food. Irish aid is funding that aspect as well. And we are in discussion to see how we had a, a program of three years that is ending this year in December, but we are exploring options how we can extend because the need is still great in that area. Okay, great stuff. Um, Katrina, just to bring you in there, I'm really interested to know a little bit more about your background in conflict and security and how and why you got involved in that. Uh, why are you so passionate about it? What countries have you worked in? Uh, and just give us a little bit of a snapshot of, of the experiences that you've had and some of the risks that you've faced. Thanks. Well, um, maybe I'll, I'll cast my mind back and be a little bit reflective here and say that uh, when I was quite a bit younger, uh, I was really moved by and affected by the scenes that we were seeing in the media at the time around the war in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And um, that genuinely was, I think, a turning point for me in terms of realising the devastating toll of conflict, in terms of being moved by its impacts and I suppose today when I see young people marching in the streets and going on school strikes for climate crisis and, and mobilising for climate justice, I'm I'm moved by that in, in turn because I think these are profound issues that, particularly for young people, they can really have a profound impact on how they see the world and how they, I suppose, articulate a vision of what a more just and a more equitable world might look like. So for me, uh, that was a really foundational experience and something that shaped my, my career choices. I worked in the humanitarian sector at the beginning of my career and I was working particularly in conflict-affected contexts, not so much out of an interest uh, in conflict at the time, so much as we know that that's where most of the humanitarian needs we see today are concentrated. And I worked primarily in food crises in East Africa, in the Horn of Africa initially, and that's a theme that has continued to run through my work, whether uh, in the humanitarian sector or more recently in my research work, focusing on conflict impacts on food crisis um, has been something that has remained very central in my work because we know just some of the devastating impacts Innocent uh, spoke about food security and food crises there. You mentioned some of the statistics in DRC. Today we see 100 million people in food crisis as a result of conflict and insecurity worldwide and it is, I think, one of the most pressing and urgent issues that we see in the world and unfortunately one of the most neglected. I think most people um, on the street don't know that the world is on the precipice of perhaps several famines, um, if not already seeing those in underway. And I think uh, to me that's been a consistent motivating factor, I suppose, to, to work in this area and work I've done in South Sudan, in Central African Republic, uh, in Nigeria, in Kenya uh, and Uganda, among others, has often had at the heart of it those humanitarian impacts on uh, of conflict and particularly where we see that devastating impact on, on food crises increasingly. We're seeing that uh, play out in a world where we have enough food and yet uh, we just don't have the same access to it or, or justice around those issues. Yeah, Katrina, so what you described there, just as a young girl, as a teenager, I assume, you were moved by the conflict that you were seeing on TV, the high profile stuff. And then you, I'm putting words in your mouth here, but you, you immersed yourself in it, you understood it more, you read up. If someone who is moved, who's experiencing something similar, who wants to understand um, the, the nuance of those situations more, what advice would you give them? Um, yeah, and where, where would you point them? 
Um, I think that for uh, for a start, these kinds of podcasts, these kinds of resources are great. I would point to the great work that uh, different organizations are doing. If there's an organization that's working on human rights or justice issues or on climate justice, an issue you're passionate about, follow their work, read the reports they're producing, uh, see what they link to or who they follow. Um, social media is great for that, that you can see what those networks are and really just immerse yourself as much as possible in information about those issues. You can really learn a huge amount and I would say prioritize those reports, those that media coverage, those podcasts where you're hearing directly from experts like Innocent, um, people on the ground with those experiences who are able to speak to the devastation that those those issues are those uh that conflict is having, but also be able to identify what some of the solutions or some of the needs might be. So rather than maybe thinking that we can solve everything, for example, um, from from an outside perspective, really understanding what it is that people in the DRC, what it is that people in South Sudan, what it is that people in Afghanistan are calling for in terms of solutions, in terms of justice, in terms of locally owned responses, uh, that's really essential because that's going to be really key to how we collectively as a, an international community support sustainable and just peace in these contexts. Uh, Katrina, having a lot of that understanding and a lot of that knowledge, like most of us don't have that. Um, so most of us, you know, we just go about our daily lives and we don't, we're not that worried about the threat of war or conflict um, because we don't know enough from you and your knowledge and your experience. What are your worries in terms of uh, the next global conflict? I know you mentioned, um, you mentioned climate is that the next driver of uh, of conflict in your eyes? Um, climate is certainly interconnected with conflict. We know that uh, that countries that, and communities who are vulnerable to climate crisis are often also experiencing conflict. So certainly we see those two things interplay. It's not always a direct line from climate crisis to, uh, to conflict. So sometimes we hear these maybe uh, apocalyptic scenarios that scarce resources are going to result directly in these, uh, these large-scale conflicts. The, the reality on the ground is often more complex because we see that politics, economics, social policy, justice issues come into play as well. In other words, even if we were to address the climate crisis and cut emissions, we're still seeing the impact of of politics, of governance, of economics, um, of inequality in these contexts. So it's important that we see climate crisis as part of a wider issue and a wider question of justice and, and equity. For me, I, I mentioned that um, a lot of my work is focused on on food crises. I'm working on an Irish Research Council, an Irish aid-funded project at the moment on, on food crisis and humanitarian resilience in South Sudan. And so where I see the next, I suppose, big priority is how we collectively focus on emerging and and very present food threats, food crises in the world um, at a time when we're seeing more and more the use of food and food systems being leveraged in conflict. So we're seeing targeting of food and food systems. Innocent mentioned the the targeting of particular groups or communities in conflict. We're increasingly seeing the targeting of food and food systems in conflict. Uh, We're seeing armed groups leverage and control access to food in a way that uh, has really devastating impacts on civilian populations. And we're seeing issues around food justice. How do we account for 
for issues around starvation when the targeting of food systems in peace building and each of those in turn to come back to some some points we raised earlier have have important gender dimensions given the role that women and girls play uh, in food production in food security and so for me that's where I see the most pressing and most urgent issue but I think that it's also difficult of course to separate that from from climate so we have a, a lot of work to do uh, needless to say but it's it's good to hear that there's uh, ongoing work and in, in particular long run running long-term um, programming uh, that Innocent mentioned, for instance, looking not just at immediate needs, but looking at that over a longer period of time, because that's also part of part of the response. Um, from an Irish perspective, Katrina, at the start of the year, Ireland took up its seat in the United Nations uh, Security Council. It's now almost halfway through its two-year term. What does it hope to achieve by the end of its term? Yes, uh, we've got a seat at the big table. Um, We've not only almost halfway through, but we've just concluded our presidency of the Security Council at the time that we're recording. So Ireland was president for the month of September. Um, Ireland has focused on uh, peace building, conflict prevention and accountability as the three themes that it sought to uh, to focus on and to make progress on on the Security Council. And we've seen it raise its voice in a number of different ways and raise the profile of particular crises. The Gaza crisis, for example, Ireland was quite vocal on the situation in Ethiopia. Ireland has been quite vocal on. So we've seen Ireland identify particular crises and draw attention to them on the Security Council and push for greater action and accountability on those. Another area where we've seen Ireland be very active is around women, peace and security. So we've we've talked a lot about uh, the gendered impacts of conflict. Ireland co-chairs the informal experts group on women, peace and security. And they have taken the opportunity, particularly as president, to raise the profile of uh, female briefers, so civil society organisation representatives speaking to the Security Council. I think they had one of the highest, if not the highest, number of female briefers at the Security Council for a president. So they've made, I think, a lot of, uh, they've drawn a lot of attention to a number of key issues and they've used the time they've had on the Security Council so far and we're, we're not quite uh, halfway to draw attention to particular crises and to really focus on how they can push for further action and act as, I suppose, a, a principled and uh, an independent voice around a lot of that. I think some areas where um, we can expect to see more focus, Ireland recently convened a a high-level debate on climate and security um, and it has been very focused on peacekeeping. Ireland is one of the major sort of contributing countries with the longest running uh, record of contributions to UN peacekeeping, for example. So we have a very strong voice and a credible position on on that. And so Ireland has focused, I think, to an extent on both of those areas uh, more recently. From my side, I think... um, those are great. Uh, those are great areas to to focus on in terms of the the scope of Ireland's program. I would like to see us talking more about uh, some of those issues domestically, though. For example, if we're going to push around climate crisis at the UN Security Council, how do we also make sure that our domestic policy and our domestic focus lives up to that ambition and that we're not just raising that in multilateral fora, but that we're also talking about it domestically and our domestic policy reflects that. Similarly, Ireland has uh, done a lot in terms of leadership on displacement and refugees and the migration uh, issue and around um, the New York Declaration on Refugees and Migration. And those are fantastic contributions to make in multilateral spaces. But I would also say we need to then look, how do we lead by example in some of these areas? Because 
once we get a, a seat at a at a, an important table and an important forum like this, it's important, I think, that we maintain that credibility that if we want to be taken seriously and be leaders in these areas, we should invest and make sure that our domestic policies are living up to that ambition as well. So I think those are some areas I'd like to see some uh, some focus on as well, that we can close some of that gap in line with the sustainable development goals and their emphasis on the universality of those principles. But I think it's been good to see Ireland drawing attention in particular to some of these crises where um, we know that Ireland has, Irish people have an interest that Irish people have been very focused, for instance, on the Gaza crisis. And we've seen, um, for instance, we saw Ireland use its voice around those issues and particularly on on the gender dimensions of conflict. I think those are very welcome. Great stuff, Katrina. It certainly sounds like from an Irish perspective, we are leading the way and we're doing enough to to raise awareness and bring it into the public conversation. So um, that's something I think we need to be need to be proud of and continue to drive that and be be leaders in that in that context. So I think that's a pretty positive way um, to end, uh, Katrina and Innocent. Thank you so much, Katrina Dowd and Innocent Mama Rorangu. I think I got it right there again for joining me on our Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. Um, thank you so much for for joining me. Thank you so much for contributing so meaningfully. And I've certainly learned a lot from today. And thank you for listening. You can post your thoughts and comments on the podcast using the Twitter hashtag First World Problems Pod and check out OxfamIreland.org to learn more about Oxfam's work. Next time, I'll be talking climate change with climate policy expert Saivo Neil and Nafkodi Dabi, climate change policy lead for Oxfam International. Thank you very much. <laughs>